Good day, and welcome to episode 262 of Live Happy Now. This is Paula Phelps, and I'd like to thank you for joining us once again this week. Today's world has become increasingly challenging, so it's fitting that this week we're talking about simplicity. How do you find more simplicity in a complex world? Well, that's complicated. And this week, author and social commentator Julia Hobsbawm looks at how we can live a simpler, more creative, and productive life. Her new book, The Simplicity Principle, Six Steps Toward Clarity in a Complex World, looks at how we can become more focused and less distracted. It's something we can all benefit from learning, so let's hear what she has to say. Julia, welcome to Live Happy Now. Paula, thank you for having me. A pleasure to be with you. Well, you have a wonderful topic to talk to us about, and it's a great time to talk about it, too, because our lives seem very complex. <laughs> and so you're talking to us about the simplicity principle. I guess to start, can you tell me what made you want to take on this issue? Yes, it is a funny time. I think a good time to be talking about simplicity just when our lives became both brutally simple through lockdown, but also a lot more complicated with the ramifications and implications of life next. I began writing seven or eight years ago around the connected age and the digital age and all the complications that that brought. And I wrote a book called Fully Connected. And that book really seemed to resonate with people that were worrying about overload. And then I thought, well, what's next? What are people concerned about now? And I thought it was in the end that people feel they have almost limitless choices limitless possibilities, windows within windows and apps and meetings and opportunities. And the world was becoming so full of potential that it was also getting really complicated. And I thought, what is it that we really want? We want all these opportunities. We want to be innovative and entrepreneurial in our lives, at least I do. But Equally, we want to not feel like we're going a bit nuts. And the truth is, I think we all did feel, even before coronavirus, that life was just really getting complicated. So I wrote The Simplicity Principle to really say, can it be simpler? What does simplicity look like? What's so wrong with complexity in the first place? And, you know, what does success look like? And that's what I came up with. That's the book. And why is complexity so difficult for us? Well, in some ways, complexity is natural. Human beings are curious and, you know, you only have to look at the way we like sports that have complicated rules or hobbies that have, you know, intricate ways in which you do something. Even a jigsaw puzzle is complicated. The human brain itself as an organism is about the most complicated object, if you like, in the world. So there's nothing unnatural about complexity and everything from viruses and weather systems to ecosystems are complex. The problem, I think, comes down to the fact that the human being that we all are inside systems and jobs and digital worlds, we're actually a bit more basic. We need sleep. We need rest. We can't overload our brains without stressing out, tuning out, vegging out. And when we do that, 
things happen which might not make life operate smoothly. In other words, you don't want your pilot to fall asleep at the controls <laughs> because they're exhausted, or you don't want somebody to miss, as arguably a lot of authorities have missed, the signs of a pandemic coming. Because guess what? The systems to warn each other and take action were too complicated. So really what I'm saying is, at the very least, we need to balance on the spectrum between what is simple and complicated. But in an ideal world, we would also give the human body and the human mind more of what we now know that needs, which is simple, straightforward, reset, nurturing, respecting the complexity, respecting that things are not straightforward. This is not a book about being simplistic. I think of things that are simplistic as a bit like it's stupid. You, no one wants to be stupid, but simplicity is actually quite sophisticated. And, and the person who taught me that actually was the late, great Maya Angelou, who I had the pleasure and privilege of working alongside for a, a good few years when I was a lot younger. And he taught me to keep it simple. And she taught me that when you can connect with what you want and what you're about and what's real and what matters, that is smart but it might also be simple. That's what I've tried to recreate. It's a bit of a blueprint for how to get to that simple that's right in the middle of everything that's super, super complicated. And one thing that makes your approach so unique and so effective is there's a lot of books that tell us, here's how to simplify, here's what you need to do. But yours isn't just about that. You really look at how the world can open up for us when we live a simpler life. So we yes. follow that. So can you talk about the research that you did to discover these results? Yeah, so I wanted to write a book that was a, like a bit of a business book. I'm a business woman and I'm a business writer. And so I wanted to give it a magic number because lots of the best business books do say do it in 10 steps and seven steps and the four ways and, the, and so on. And I wanted to really structure it so that it was incredibly useful. But I also wanted to pay homage, if you like, to the philosopher in all of us, that we're on a quest to find meaning. And I think more and more we want meaning in our lives. And so I thought, how do I do this? And so I alighted on the idea that I would write about simplicity and the human brain. I would dig into the research around neuroscience and present some case studies that people could relate to, uh, some data that says, look, this is why the human brain needs to keep it simple. But I would also structure the book a little bit like a cross between a business book and a recipe book, frankly, so that if you, like me, are quite impatient to say, well, all right, I buy it. I'm into simplicity versus complexity. Where do I begin? How do I start? That it would be easy to pick up the book and dive in and to find something within five minutes of reading the book that you could relate to and do. So that's what I wanted. And the feedback so far has been quite good because I think that most of us now want just quick wins. You know, we want hacks and simplicity as well as wanting to look at the deeper meaning. And I think the coronavirus crisis is a really good moment to reset and rethink. What do we want? How do we want to live? How's it going to be? And the idea behind putting simplicity at the absolute center of it is this. We know that life is not very long in the end. We know that life is much shorter often than we think. And we know that a lot of our time is taken up with stuff that when you really think about it, it doesn't matter as much as the stuff that 
matters, which is love and life and relationships and getting by. And so I wanted to come up with an operating system that said, look, no matter how complicated it is, how do you make a decision? How do you get clarity? How do you act? How do you relax? How do you feel productive? And how do you help your co-workers and your colleagues and those people in your family to feel great about a simpler approach rather than to make it one more stress to deal with? I'm pretty anti-stress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this whole book is anti-stress and it really does lay out some... I love how you introduce all these different principles and they're very catchy, easy to remember. One of the things that you talk about is hexagon action. So can, I love that. Yes. Can, you, can you tell us what that is and how it works? Yeah. So like I say, I wanted to be very practical as well as, you know, deeply thoughtful for those that want to get deeply thoughtful. But, you know, I wanted to be accessible. And so I wanted a number and I, I really thought hard, Paula, about that number. And in the end, I came up with the number six as the principal number around which to base all your actions to keep it simple. So, you know, if your listeners are busy and they say, get on with it, get this author to tell us what the big idea is. I'm telling you now, the big idea is keep it simple and stick to the number six. And the reason is that seven is the maximum working memory limit of humans. So yes, you can have the 12 step, the 15 step, the 20 step, the 10 step, but you need really in order to get stuff done in your day. And if we're honest and we look back at a day, how many things did we ever actually do? What was in our mind? It's never more than about seven actual things. But I didn't really like the number seven because I found that the number six was a very special number, not least because of the six-sided hexagon in nature. And that is an important thing because a lot of us think visually as well as in numbers and to-do lists. We think about shape and pattern. And it's an interesting thing to have a shape that also fits in with this number. And the, first of all, when I looked at the number six and the hexagon, I thought, golly, there are a lot of really interesting important ways in which this shape and number affect our lives. So for instance, the hexagon is, is the strongest shape pretty much in the whole of nature. Saturn, which is the sixth planet from the sun, has a hexagonal cloud made up of carbon. Carbon makes everything that the universe lives by, really. And carbon is only ever formulated more or less in hexagons. The snowflake is hexagon. So you're getting the picture that the structure and the symbolism matters and put simply, the idea of hexagon action, and it's just an idea, it's just a trope really, is to say, I'm going to follow a pattern in what I do and how we do things to get stuff done. And that pattern is going to be based around shape and the number six. And that number and that shape relates to nature and the natural world. Another example of a perfect hexagon is the snowflake. Every single snowflake is individual like we are, but it's hexagonal shaped crystals. And suddenly it felt to me like lots of things were falling into place. And simplicity, I believe, is all about getting things to fall into place. And the final piece of the puzzle for me was that the honeybee, which many people think honeybees and humans don't have much in common, but you know what they do? The honeybee lives in a 
six-sided hexagonal honeycomb, builds that honeycomb, lives in it. The honeybee is a species. It's an insect. It's got six legs. The human being, all planetary life pretty much depends on the honeybee as it happens. Earthwatch declared it the most important species because of its pollination of flowers. There was a wonderful piece of research done by a guy called Tor Hansen that showed that if you even take something like a McDonald's hamburger, pretty much everything apart from the grain and the meat, but all the flavorings and absolutely everything are a direct result of the honeybee. It was a brilliant piece of research. And the point about the honeybee is that it lives and works in the same place. And now thanks to the smartphone, so do we. And the honeybee has to survive by collaborating, by working, by procreating, also by fighting battles. And I just thought, let's make the bee the poster species and then let's call it hexagon action. So it's a very long answer, I'm afraid. (laughs) But actually, it's all about getting to simple. What are the six things I have to do today? What matters to me? How productive do I want to be? What is productivity to you? Because a lot of times people have different definitions of what productivity means these days. I think productivity feels like you get to the end of the day and you think, yeah, I did that. I did good. I got my stuff done. I didn't drown. You know, I felt there's individual productivity and some people are very driven, but it's also most of us work for a living. Most of us work for 10,000 days of our lives even if we're in slightly unusual working conditions right now. And we work with co-workers, we work in organizations, and often I think I'm right in saying those are dysfunctional. You know, you have a beautifully named podcast, Live Happy. Most, if not all, workplaces are not brilliantly happy. Some are, of course, there are league tables of the happy places to work. But most people's experience of work or a lot of people's experience of work, is that it's not happy. And I think those places that aren't happy are also places that aren't productive. So productive for me means it feels right. It is right. It gets stuff done. Beautifully said. Something that you talk about, I love this term that you used. It might be out there already. I had not heard it. And that is infobesity. Yes, I do like language and words. I think the words we use are tremendously important. And When I started to think about this whole question of how do we cope with a complexity of a life that's always on, of lots of digital interactions, it's almost impossible, especially now in the coronavirus crisis, it's almost impossible to not interact. I'm finding my mother who's 88 years old. That's a real problem. She can't really understand all the technology, but there's nothing she can do now that doesn't involve it. And... One of the things that technology has ushered in, although I'm not anti-technology at all, especially now living off Zoom, but one of the problems is it's brought about an absolute excess of information. Information is knowledge that we need to use. It's views, it's entertainment, it's escapism. It's also rumor and the swirl of things that aren't necessarily true and that we can't necessarily trust. And I regard good connected behavior as like health. I call it social health, how we connect to others digitally and face-to-face and our relationships to one another is all part of what I call social health. And I thought, well, 
Let's look at it in the context of actual health, physical health and mental health. We know all about obesity. We know what causes obesity. Well, we're living also with infobesity. We are living with too much information that we don't actually know is true. We don't always need. And we need, just like we do with monitoring, I do, I don't know what you do, Paula, but I monitor how much chocolate I eat. I monitor my fruit and my vegetables and I monitor my exercise and my sleep. That's how I try and stay healthy. Well, we need to do the same with how we manage and get the variety in our diet of information. And that's why I call it infobesity as a warning sign. Are you infobese? Are you swimming about online only reading one source of information or believing what one person has told you or scrolling or, you know, are you actually getting a good nutritious blend? And how do they get that? Because that's something I see going on, especially right now. It mm, doesn't take long question. for Facebook to get ugly, you know? We're, so it's a, it's a great question. I think that we all need, and I've written a whole chapter about individuality, you know, we need to both belong to the community and that is central to existing. But we also need to assert our individuality. We need to find out what we need to know. And that usually means a wide variety of information sources, just like they found with physical health and diets. You know, I, I sometimes just grab bread and cheese for lunch. Who doesn't? Today I made myself, I'm in London, by the way. Today I made myself, you know, a beautiful, multicolored, nutritious salad. And it took me time. It took me longer than it would have taken just to grab a sandwich. But I did that because it is more nutritious. It was quite delicious. You need to do that with your information sources. Instead of just taking what's at face value, what's right in front of you, whether it's about the science of coronavirus, whether it's about the economy, whether it's about what your politicians are telling you, I would say just like you need five fruit and vegetables a day. Well, you need five or my magic number six sources of information a day. And the internet is very good for that. You know, what are the universities saying about the piece of information that you're looking at? What is a respected newspaper saying? And what is Facebook saying? And what are any of those other channels saying? You just want to really design your own salad of information. How about that? I love that. And another thing that you talk about is walking away from what you call the distracted masses and joining the focused few. So can you talk about what you mean by that, how we do it, and how we benefit from that? Yes, I struggle with this myself. I mean, don't we all? It's not just the algorithms. It's our natural tendency. The human brain likes distraction, actually. The human brain is curious. And so the digital designers the people that gave us the permanent scroll, they know that. And so they want to distract. Advertisers want our eyeballs, as they say. And the problem with that is it's difficult to be productive. It's fine to be distracted if you're on and off social media and you're zigzagging in and out of emails and you're, you know, hopping on and off. But it exhausts you. It takes up a lot of mental energy and then it's very difficult to actually give serious attention, which is why you're seeing a lot of kids struggling with their classes because they're not paying attention because the digital engagement distracts and fragments their attention. There was a really 
really interesting piece of research carried out at the University of Irvine in California by a woman called Gloria Marks that seemed to suggest that it's actually quantifiable how much your attention suffers if you're online and then come offline. Her research suggested that it's something like 20 minutes before you can regain your attention. And if you think about it, that's what it feels like. If you're scrolling and then you've got to run into a meeting physically or virtually, is your attention absolutely there all the time? It isn't. And the more you're on and off, the harder that is. So I believe in boundaries and having times when you allow yourself to scroll and roam and do emails and times when you say, not necessarily I'm going to put away my digital, but I'm going to be not browsing and grazing all the time. It comes back to that infobesity. You know, if you snack the whole day long, you're going to, you know, put on a bit more weight than if you didn't, right? And you're never going to eat that healthy meal because... Right. You're never going to be fully hungry. Yes, exactly. So it's very transferable, the analogy between physical health, mental health, and social health, I think. And like I say, simplicity is all about having a life that feels controllable. So much of our world is not controllable. Goodness me, we know that right now in this moment. But actually, the simplicity principle says you can control a lot more than you think. You can choose a lot more than you think. You can design a lot more than you think. And you need less than you think. You need to do less than you think. And that's what I believe. That's wonderful, Julia. When I come back, I'm going to tell the listeners how they can find your book, how they can find out more about you. But as I let you go, what is it that you most hope that everyone takes away from reading The Simplicity Principle? Oh, well, that's a lovely question. I think that most people are very close to being able to control their lives, but they need to stop and take time to notice what they're feeling what they're thinking, and what possibilities there are to make small adjustments. You know, one of my great mentors is Ariana Huffington. I'm her editor-at-large at Thrive Global. And Ariana talks, I profile her in the book. I profile six individuals who I think embody the simplicity principle. And Ariana talks about the micro step. You know, I want everybody to realize that a sense of peace and control and Also, excitement and creativity is much closer than you think. We can all do it. I'm an optimist. Even with the pessimism of today's world, I'm an optimist. And I think I'd like my readers to be too. That was Julia Hobsbawm, author of The Simplicity Principle, Six Steps Toward Clarity in a Complex World. If you'd like to learn more about Julia and her book, just visit us at livehappynow.com and follow the links. And a reminder to bring a little bit of happiness to your workday every day with the Live Happy Daily Happiness Briefing. Visit our website for a link to enable this as a skill. Then start your morning by saying, Alexa, give me my Live Happy Daily Happiness Briefing. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.